Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. This week, our favorite physiologist, Dr. Steven Seiler, is back on the program to talk about something that many of us get wrong, the distinction between overtraining, overreaching, and burnout. Often these terms are used synonymously, but there are many nuanced differences between these conditions, and that's what we'll explore in today's episode. We'll dispel any myths about these terms, point out the scenarios that lead to each, and talk through how to avoid the worst outcomes. While research on overtraining syndrome is still in its nascent phase, we now know about the complex hormonal and physiological complications that can lead to this debilitating condition, and we'll discuss that in depth. On the other hand, overreaching, and that term, hasn't long been defined in the science literature but as a training method, it has a long history. We'll differentiate between functional and non-functional overreaching and how to differentiate between those two scenarios when it comes to your training. Then there's burnout, that lack of motivation, that lack of uh, get up and go, that mental fatigue that most likely all of us have experienced at some point. Is burnout an inevitable part of being a bike racer? We'll discuss. In addition to Dr. Seiler today, we'll hear from a host of great names in the endurance sports world, including Sebastian Weber from Inside, Jim Miller at USA Cycling, pro mountain biker Pace McKelvin, and coach Neil Henderson from Wahoo. One final note before we dive in. In the episode, you'll hear Coach Connor describe his bout of overtraining syndrome. When we were recording the show, Trevor thought back through the haze of 25 years to try and remember the training volume that led to his issues. You'll hear him say in the program it was only 10 hours. On later reflection, he feels it was more like 15 hours per week. And that's a massive difference given how he was training at that time. So stay tuned for that discussion. And with that, let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. I think one of the most fascinating aspects of the Whoop strap is this sleep coach that they offer. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, something I like about this sleep coach is it's more than just a number. So they do give you in the morning a percentage score, how, how well you slept. Quality indicator. Right. Which I look at, but then I, uh, I think the value is diving into it. You can really go, no pun intended, deep, where you can see the whole heart rate profile of your, your night of sleep. So you can see when you are awake, when you are in deep sleep, when you are in REM sleep. It'll really tell you a lot about you know, how much was I waking up, how much was I moving around, how much good quality deep sleep did I get. You can dissect the, the, the nightly sleep patterns and learn a lot about yourself. And then once you've started to dissect that and learn what your typical sleep pattern looks like, that actually is something that also goes beyond the, the assessment they give you is be able to look at a bad night or a particularly good night and see how it varies from what you are used to. Well, it's always a pleasure, Dr. Seiler, Dr. Steven Seiler, to have you on the program. Welcome back to Fast Talk. Well, thanks, guys. I feel pretty at home here in the hot seat with you guys. 
Nice. Even though you're way over there in Kristiansand, Norway, enjoying a lovely late summer day. That's right. The first twinges of fall seem to be in the air. So fall comes a bit earlier here in Norway, I guess, than it does in, in a lot of the United States. I know you want to get right into telling a story about the backstory of this episode, Trevor. You got scolded, publicly uh, scolded. Oh, I did. <laughs> I'm glad we went right there. Yeah. So this is not the typical subject that we, we've talked with you uh, about, Dr. Seiler, but this is... I think it was a Twitter post. Yeah. I mentioned burnout, and you rightfully chastised me, saying I was using the term burnout incorrectly. And that sparked this episode of there's all these different terms. There's overreach, there, and there's different types of overreach that we'll talk about. There's overtraining, there, there's burnout, and they are not the same things. Right. Sometimes people use those terms interchangeably and incorrectly, so... You know, this episode is about differentiating those, talking about each of those, their attributes, um, the complications thereof, maybe even how you back out of these things and how complicated that situation can be. So, yeah, overtraining versus overreaching versus burnout and all of the complexities. And I was commenting that I can't hear these terms again for another week because <laughs> I spent so much time over the weekend practicing them just to make sure I get them right. Well, I'm going to, we're all going to be on each other to make sure that the uh, correct terminology is used in each situation. I can almost guarantee one of us is going to make a mistake, but let's all try to keep each other uh, on, on track. But to get us started, who wants to take on the kind of one minute overview? What is the difference between these three things? Yeah, let's, let's hear from Dr. Seiler. Well, yeah, you know, just to complete the puzzle, I think you can even start with a fourth one, but it's the easiest one because it gets us started. And that is you do a workout and you're tired after, and, and that's normal, you know, that, that we train and we're fatigued uh, immediately after and, and maybe for hours after to the next day. And hopefully we're recovered and we train again. So this is a cycle that we go through all the time as athletes. Now we take it a step higher and we're, we're in a normal training routine. We're pushing, but now we want a little extra. We want to really, you know, we add uh, some volume or we add a, an extra interval session each week, or we add even more. And we start stretching that rubber band, you might say, as a metaphor uh, with the intention that it will bounce, will bounce back. We'll get a kind of an overshoot. Uh, and that's that classic general adaption syndrome from our hero, uh, Celia, way back decades ago. And, and athletes use this, you know, in training camps, in preparation for big events. They really dig in. They have the intention of sometimes, you know, digging a bit of a hole for themselves. Swimmers are notorious for this. And then then getting a super compensation. And if they get that right, then that's what we call functional overreaching. So it's an intentional, you know, taking out the shovel, digging a bit of a hole for yourself physically, where performance actually declines a bit. You're really, you know, you're pushing the volume, you're pushing the training load, and then you let up on the, on the gas pedal, you give your body some recovery time in a taper and you get, 
you know, maybe a 3% overshoot. Well, that's fantastic. So that's, so that's functional overreaching. It may take days up to maybe two weeks to come all the way back and get that overshoot. Now, non-functional overreaching, it, it's not hard to imagine that that just, you took it too far and it didn't work. You end up kind of damaging the rubber band and it doesn't, you don't get the overshoot. And in fact, you get a delayed recovery. So you, you're starting down that pathway towards a more profound and, and more long-term uh, deficit functionally. And this can take several weeks, maybe a month to come back from, maybe two months to come back from. But it's a, it's a fuzzy, uh, the, the key difference definitionally between functional and non-functional is just it's the function. <laughs> Did you get that? supercompensation right. as planned or did you you know end up limping back to normalcy after you know weeks of things not going well and that championship event you were supposed to be really primed for you end up sucking you know you just weren't there because you end up pushing too hard that's a typical non-functional overreaching situation that's uh, really important. You can even see a non-functional overreach if it takes too long to to come out of it. If it takes that month or longer, you can detrain. So you can come out of it weaker, not stronger. Yeah, absolutely. That's a critical distinction. And let's be honest, uh, I would almost say functional overreaching is not for beginners. Uh, that, that, that process, it, it's usually it tends to be successful in athletes and coaches, coach athlete groups or, or, or teams that really are tuned in and they know how, how much they can, you know, stretch that, uh, that rubber band. They know that they've learned through experience what the athlete tolerates. And, uh, because it is, it's tricky and it can easily go the wrong way. Yeah, you've used so, the you've used the rubber band analogy. You could also maybe talk about w walking sort of right up to an edge with overreaching, and if you don't get it right, you go off the you go off the cliff. Or if you stretch the rubber band too much, you snap that rubber band, and that's where we get into problems. A lot of right. coaches like talking about the razor's edge. So functional overreach is going to the edge. Non-functional overreach is going over the edge. Yeah, and there's there are some sports. Swimming, I think, would be the one I that I see most common. That is, functional overreaching is almost built into the psyche of the athlete. Uh, it's almost like they they don't know what how to, to how to not do that hmm. before a major competition. Uh, they really dig in deep. They do a they they count on that that kind of supercompensation from a from a hard overreach uh, situation but there's been some research there are some studies that say that you know they're not even sure this actually works you know that 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 if you just train smart you end up the same place so uh, the whole idea i think it does work for some if they know how to do it if they get that you know that uh the increase appropriate because it always involves an increase in training load either through volume or intensity or both so you are purposefully increasing the load at a higher rate of increase than you normally would and that's usually a recipe for 
problems. You know, when you do a pretty drastic increase in volume or, you know, overall training stress, then there will be some negative consequences. Here, the goal is that, yes, that we want that to happen, but we, we're going to control it so well that it's going to give us a bounce back. Yep. You know, that's, that's what you're gambling on. I did a, a lot of research for this one, but I think the study or review I spent the most time on that I found really interesting was from this year, February of 2020, uh, by a Dr. Bellinger. And the title of it is Functional Overreaching in Endurance Athletes, a Necessity or Cause for Concern. And he makes a pretty good case for the fact that, well, yes, you can get a supercompensation from functional overreach when you look at studies that compare functionally overreached athletes to athletes who just increase their training load but don't get functionally overreached you, you see pretty equal supercompensation. so he's really questioning is it necessary at all mm. well right and we're going to get into this more later but that brings up the question of how does one determine if they're functionally overreached or not and, and i know that's a tricky thing to answer and we'll get into that later yeah. but i that is the first thing that springs to mind if there's ever been a guest on our show who's been precise about the definition of terms, it's Sebastian Weber, the head physiologist at Inside, And for good reason. He understands that you can go in the wrong direction if you're not clear on what you're talking about. So, when we had him on the show recently, we had to ask him his definition of overtraining. What's the difference between overreaching and overtraining? I cannot tell you because the definition, obviously, of overtraining is, is pretty weak. So if you cannot define one of two items, you cannot compare them appropriately. So that's interesting. What, so talk a little bit about that with overtraining and why you, you feel the definition is weak and what you think of it as. So why I think the definition of overtraining is weak, there are tons of papers, and it's very difficult to really get a grip on how you, maybe I should not say define, but how you diagnose overtraining. Uh, because there are so many different aspects to it. And the only common ground, so to speak, is maybe a drop in performance. And then pff, you have to distinguish between fatigue and overtraining, right? So that's, that's really, really a, a difficult piece here. There's not so much really, I think, I can contribute to that beside the definition is difficult. And the only thing maybe I can contribute to that is saying that when you have these symptoms of like, uh, or you have some symptoms of, of, um, of overtraining, then I would like to believe that is mostly derived from a kind of central fatigue. So we're talking about hormone systems. We are talking yeah, mostly about hormone systems that which, which react or where you can, which you can link to a phenomenon of, of, of overtraining. The muscle itself is pretty resistant and very, very good adaptable to whatever kind of training low. And the muscle itself has also a huge amount, uh, a huge ability to recover if it is in the, or when it is in the right environment. And this is then, you know, a little bit messed up to say, to say in, a, in, a, in an overtrained uh, scenario. For me, overtraining refers mostly to more like central, you know, central fatigue or central issues or problems going on and not so much uh, on the local muscular level. How do you identify that in your, your athletes? Like how would you be, what do you look for to say to an athlete, this isn't normal training fatigue. 
you're off course, we need to adjust. Now, for me, we are talking more about how to get a grip on fatigue and recovery. And for me, one of the most important things, believe it or not, is talk to the athlete. Mm -hmm. Talk to the athlete and get his feeling. And sometimes it is on purpose that the athlete is fatigued and doesn't feel fresh and, you know, is a little bit tired and feels slow and so on. And sometimes it's not on purpose. And that's, that's important to communicate with your athlete. Even maybe you write it as a training program. Like, you know, in this session on this week, be ready to feel overall tired, more like muscular fatigue whatsoever. Um, so first important thing for me is talk to your athlete. And then the second thing is, yeah, there are some measures uh, which, you, which, you, which you can look at. I personally look at heart rate kinetics and heart rate to power kinetics as one indicator in the training, also to get a grip on some information what might be possibly going on um, during the training. You might want to call it heart rate uncoupling. I don't really think that's a lucky term for that, but a nice term. But anyway, because um, it's difficult also to distinguish from uh, dehydration. But that's something I, I, I look at uh, personally. Then if it's really like an ongoing thing. We normally do a, a full metabolic profile. So we do, do a full test and look what's going on in VO2max and so on, because especially in VO2max, you will be able to see fatigue or overraging or non-recovery and drop of performance. That is one of the very first metrics that actually will react. So that's a good indicator. And then on a short-term level, what I used was um, uh, hormone levels. So we would check um, in the saliva, um, as you do in training, we would check, for example, for cortisol reactions. Um, normally, if you are if you are fresh, then you would see uh, a reaction of cortisol levels after hard effort. And there's technologies uh, where you can either, for example, um, monitor it on a daily basis, like morning measurements, which is important because cortisol levels depend on the on the time of the day as well. Um, but we would actually use it also in training where we'd say, okay, you know, like let's for example say it's Wednesday, you had a hard race on Sunday and you want to understand, okay, are we ready yet? And the athlete also is not really sure. Do we want to do another harder effort or we just want to keep going easy for a third day? Uh, we could do just one hard effort, a uh, few minutes, three, four minutes, two minutes, uh, something in like that ballpark. Measure the call to the levels afterwards. If it spikes, it's a good sign that um, you are, quote, quote, fresh again or fresh enough. If it doesn't spike up, it says a, blend, uh, a blended uh, reaction, then the athlete is not fresh and you should maybe keep going easy. So these are some of the tools I've been using. So before that, let's finish defining overtraining and burnout, and then we can talk about how to differentiate them. Right. So if, and if you go uh, several steps further, and, and if you have an athlete that has solved every problem with doubling down on training load, um, meaning that when it hasn't gone well, they have answered that problem by saying, well, I need to train more, they will be a candidate for that ultimate problem, which is overtraining. You know, this overtraining syndrome. Now, the reason overtraining has get, been given this extra word at the end, a syndrome, is because syndromes mean that you there's several ways to get there. It it and and when that happens, in other words, there's this set of symptomology that may happen because of several different 
mechanisms, then they end up calling it a syndrome. And that's kind of where we're at with overtraining. You can be overtrained. Like I talked to a national team coach and he says, look, we've had overtraining cases because of viruses, because of infections, where you've got this highly trained athlete that is on the razor's edge, but they're okay. They're doing well. And then they get mono or some other kind of virus that drags them down and then they keep training and the combination puts them into this overtraining state that that happens but another way it happens in the more probably more typical way it happens is just a long-term pushing the volume and the you know the total load too hard and not recovering because basically one way of calling it is overtraining but you could call it also under recovery syndrome um and it's it's pretty hard to distinguish the two because they're two sides of the same coin. And in fact, if you look at the historical literature, under recovery has been one of the terms that's been used. And I should forgive you, uh, Trevor, for also using burnout because that term has also been used synonymously with overtraining. So the literature is itself ha has been kind of, uh, what should I say, inconsistent. Uh, and I think part of that is just it's science has taken a while to figure this out. You know, they they've looked at different things, seen different symptomologies, different snapshots of a what we might say is a is a continuum. And I think that's where we're at in our understanding of this is that we're really looking at a continuum in, in a in a stress and recovery kind of balance and, and different to different degrees that it, that this stress recovery balance becomes shifted or out of balance and how the body responds. Yeah. I think you brought up a couple important points. One about overtraining, the fact that it's not just you, you, you trained even harder than you did for, for overreach. But I think all the definitions I read had something on the lines and I'm, I'm reading this right out of one review says part of the criteria for overtraining is an additional trigger beyond excessive training load. So that's what you're saying. There's something else like a virus or something. And as you pointed out, when I, I didn't use burnout correctly, burnout is much more mental. So that's simply, you just look at your bike and go, I don't want to touch that. What is the literature saying now about the, the true definition of burnout? Is it exclusively mental or is it a, a combination of physical and mental? If I were going to do just the, the, the poor man's distinguish, you know, how do I distinguish these? I would, for me, overtraining is a, has a, it's a physical syndrome, but it can have obvious psychological consequences. Right. Whereas burnout, at least from the way I, I, the literature I've read, burnout is more a mental stress related syndrome that can have physical consequences. When I was, Reading about burnout, one of the things they talked about was monotony. There's actual metrics for monotony, but it kind of the, the term mm -hmm. explains it fairly well. And there's just a certain point where you get tired of the training, where mentally it just gets tougher and tougher. And you just hit that point where you just don't want to keep doing it. You just can't keep pushing yourself. So in some ways, I would even say there, there is a form of burnout that happens in most athletes towards the end of the season where you're just like, I'm, I'm ready to be done. Right. And you might call that a functional burnout in the yeah. sense that, yeah, it, they almost should be there at the end of the season. 
but but then they know that now the now the recovery period is coming so you've kind of timed everything so that you know you you they've used up that motivational energy at the right time exactly yeah it's it's a spectrum here as you were saying the the overtraining syndrome is never a good thing it's out at no. the extreme uh to the left no. or to the right whichever you prefer um overreaching however sort of done correctly is a can be a positive thing it's it's what a lot of athletes use to get better uh but it also has potential to be a negative thing burnout on the other end of the spectrum is never really a positive thing but it's less extreme than overtraining right. now burnout can occur while you're also overtrained or overreached <laughs> right, they right. can go hand in hand yep uh, Dr. Eukendrup back in 2004 wrote a, a review where he questioned whether it was a continuum from acute fatigue to overreaching to overtraining and, and did make the argument that actually overtraining might be something different that can happen concurrently. The other really important thing to point out is they didn't even officially define overreach until 2006. So this is evolving. And it was, it was right around then when this concept of functional and non-functional came around. And when you are talking about, so when you hear people say, oh, I'm, I'm overtrained, I'm really tired, I need time off. Normally what people are actually talking about is non-functional overreach. As Dr. Seiler said, overtraining is actually really rare. Right. 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 Yeah. So that, and, and most of the people listening to this show, because statistically speaking, most of them are not pros, they're not elites. And they're age groupers, they're guys that are, you know, have normal jobs and so forth. It's really hard to, for them to hit a true overtraining state. Uh, but that terminology, it's just kind of like the, the term anaerobic. It just kind of gets misused a lot and used for anything high intensity. Now everybody says, oh, I've gone anaerobic or now I'm overtraining. So unfortunately, the term is misused. Um, I do think, though, a lot of age groupers are chronically overreached, meaning they're in that stagnation mm -hmm. phase that you could call non-functional overreaching. Uh, it's, but then it gets trickier to say, are they overreached or are they just training wrong? Mm. Right. And, right. <laughs> so, and, that's, and really, to be honest, when I was kind of, getting trying to find my legs as a as a sports scientist and decide what i wanted to do you know i i was looking at all that's when this overtraining research was really in its kind of its peak i said well you know i don't really want to study how you do it wrong i would kind of like to figure out how to do it right how to you know what if if all that if this is the wrong thing to do then what's the right thing to do what's correct training look like and that was really in a way my motivation for kind of going down that pathway that i have which has been more on these issues of trying to optimize the training process and all this intensity distribution and so forth but what's interesting about it is it ends up going full circle because after 20 years of doing this when i look at trying to understand correct training, it is about that fine-tuned balance between signal and stress, which, you know, years ago, that's what overtraining the literature was talking about is overtraining is, you know, fundamentally 
a failure to get the balance between training and recovery or training and stress or signal and stress. You know, you can choose your metaphors to get that right. Right. So it's, it's, it's the backside of all the research, all those things we talk about with intensity distribution and volume progression and all of that. They're, they are intimately related uh, in my mind. It's kind of approaching the problem from different directions. And the problem with understanding overtraining and overreaching is you, you really can't diagnose it until it's already happened. Yes. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of like you, you say, yep, that was a train wreck. Well, it's a little <laughs> late, you know. We asked Jim Miller, USA Cycling's chief of sports performance, his thoughts on overreaching. And he also brought up that important balance between training and recovery. How do you explain or what's your definition of overreach versus overtraining versus burnout? And, and what have you seen in athletes you've worked with? I think it's always underesting. Your body is actually really capable of handling a massive amount of anything you throw at it. Uh, I always use the use the Grand Tour for example. If if anybody were to write 21 days of six hour rides with two rest days, but on those rest days you have to ride an hour and a half so you don't shut down. Uh, everybody in the right mind would be like, "That's an insane training program. Who what idiot writes this?" Uh, but yeah, guys do it three times a year, and they've done it for 75 years. Uh, so so you're humanly capable of it. Uh, the issue is always underresting, and I think people underrest. Uh, that, that's most of their issues. And you do it, for example, you do a 10-day training block. Uh, ideally, after five days, an athlete generally says, oh, I feel okay. You as a coach say, okay, let's, let's do a little bit of work. Or you as a coach say, we've rested for almost seven days and it's, it's time to go back to work. But if they're not rested, they're not rested. And, and any time I think you finish training blocks or hard racing blocks, the first thing that has to happen is they have to be rested. Without, without the rest, then the next block isn't as good. I wrote an article a long time ago that... Uh was a little bit controversial, but that, that was the theme of it. My, my message was, there's no such a thing as overtraining. There's only under recovery. That's what I think. And, you know, the same, the same human, I guess, sort of uh, analogy is, as humans, we're, we're just, we're so adaptable to anything. It's like you can, if you stay in four seasons everywhere you travel, you become accustomed to four seasons and you believe that you can only stay in a four seasons vice versa. If you're a prisoner of war and you get put in a cage, uh, ultimately you can become fairly accustomed to that cage and you just adapt to the circumstances and, and, and survive. So I really think with training, if, if you rest appropriate, if you rest appropriately, then you can, you can pretty much throw anything at them that, that you want to throw at them. I guess the question becomes, and this I know is a, is a big question, how do you know what is the appropriate amount of rest? What do you look for in an athlete to understand whether they're leading towards being overtrained or burnout? Do you use, um, 
do you look for signs in their mood? Do you use devices? Is it all of those things? Look at the comments they're making in, in uh, their training records? Yes, yeah, all of it. I think, I think you have to. That's where I think not one metric tells a story, but collectively they will, they will tell you what is happening if you look for them. And for me, really, at the end of a training block, before we start another training block, I like to hear them. I like to talk to them and hear their voice. What they may say in a text or what they, what they put in their training notes, whatever analytics you're using or saying, those are all good and, and very objectable, but I like to hear them. Uh, especially if I know it was a really hard training block and, and then make my decision that way. And a lot of times with, with rest, I'll, if there's a time to err on, on the side of caution, that's, that's it. So if I'm undecided, like, do we start training today or do we start training tomorrow? I will almost always just default to tomorrow. Give it another day. It doesn't hurt. One day doesn't, one day of rest won't make or break you. But getting back to training before you're ready, that makes a big difference. Yep. And if you listen to athletes, right, they're always going to tell you they're good. Almost <laughs> always. Yes, yes. Well, especially if you've built warriors, right? Yeah, that's it. They're good. They're ready to go. And that's where you have to proceed with caution. What is the way of indicating you're heading towards a non-functional overreach or, or even overtraining? And they've they so far have not been able to find a biomarker. They found hormonal changes, but they basically said any sort of, even just acute fatigue is going to produce those hormonal changes. So there, there's minor changes in immune function, uh, but nothing that really gives you that big red flag. So the way, when you look at the definitions, how they, they show the differences between these, this non-functional, functional, and overreach and, and overtraining, uh, the, the biggest one is just length of recovery, which doesn't really help you because you have, you don't know until right, you're in it. Exactly. Yeah, Where, so you like, how, how bad was it? Well, that, right. yeah, that's very, not very useful to us at all. If it takes you days to a week to recover, that's functional overreach. Mm -hmm. If it takes you weeks to a month, that's non-functional. <laughs> If it takes you months to years, you were overtrained, but that, that's after the fact. Yeah, yeah, right. not very helpful in the moment. But another one that can be helpful that a lot of the more recent studies and reviews that I read is a drop in performance. If you are pushing yourself, so in all these, you're going to feel fatigued. Even just that acute fatigue that you're talking about, you go and do a couple hard training days, you're going to be fatigued. But the, it's one of the lines that you can cross is when you start seeing your performance drop, then you're starting to get over that razor's edge. Right. And, and a drop in performance is the golden criteria for all of these. They're all associated with a state where the athlete's performance has declined despite the maintenance or even an increase in training load. So that's kind of by that, that definition is there for all three states, but what comes after that is, is the difference. So, so you're right. That's the first signal, uh, I think, but then I guess what you also want to start looking for is I, I'm seeing a drop in performance, you know, I, uh, this workout, these last two or three workouts, I, I'm not holding my usual threshold power during these threshold sessions. Uh, I'm down 20 watts. Um, 
so that's a the first you know that's a canary in the coal mine for sure um and then you know often you i would want to if i'm the coach i'm going to want to triangulate that with some other stuff you know heart rate and perceived exertion is this feeling harder uh or initially you may see that the athletes you're seeing this decoupling the heart rates are higher than they should be but then later in the process they actually may be lower right uh because and then that's corresponding to the fact that the entire system has become depressed so their max heart rate has gone down so heart rate is tricky blood lactate may be may go down but that also can be associated with their max lactate is 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 going down so you know there's different phases in this development that you can try to capture by triangulating with you know this that physical performance we always you know we're measuring power and pace for key workouts where we kind of have a good idea of where they should be and then we're looking at perceived exertion either using the metrics or just using good sensitive you know feeling and we're we're doing a little physiology we're we're you know occasionally measuring heart rate and lactate and and we we're looking at that relationship and is it changing in an un, in a you know an abnormal way so the same tools that we use for monitoring they they're the tools that are available to us for trying to avert the beginning of an overreach situation yeah or or titrate it really carefully if yeah. that's the goal. You, you brought up that really important one of the um, that drop in heart rate. So there are some recent studies that talk about parasympathetic hyperactivity, which is just going to to bring that heart rate down. So you see um, at both maximal and submaximal intensities, your heart rate lower than normal. You also see after an effort, your, your heart rate comes down much quicker. Uh, and I certainly, when I'm working with my athletes, when I have them do a fatigue block, I don't, once I see that drop in the heart rate, I don't like to see them go that much longer before we take a break. Now, when you talk to about Tour de France athletes, they're in that state after the first week and then just keep pushing through it for a couple of weeks. And we'll talk about how, like, what's a normal training heart rate becomes their max by the end of the Tour de France. So that, that yeah, is for sure. Well, the Tour de France is an excellent example. I, I would, for most, you know, for the domestics, you know, the, the, the guys like that, that's, it's a non-functional overreach, uh, yep. protocol for them. Uh, occasionally you'll hear, you know, Tour de France riders that maybe were protected enough that they were able to pick and choose their battles that they can almost go straight from there. A week later, they can, they've competed in, in, uh, track, championships and taking gold medals you know so it that extreme three-week loading can either be functional overreaching or non-functional overreaching depending on their their position in the peloton what you know what their role is and so forth but for sure it's an overreach situation for them yeah now i think the really the most interesting part of this the conversation we're going to have today is this difference between functional and non-functional overreach and whether it's needed. But before we go there, do we just want to dive into overtraining and try to explain to everybody how extreme overtraining is, just so that people understand how much we're, we're differentiating this? Yeah, I think it's it's worth illustrating the the extreme nature of this, um, how you know th that would help 
people understand that when they toss that term around, they're using it incorrectly, most likely. Um, I know, Trevor, you have personal experience here, so we can, we can have you share that as well. And I guess w one of the questions I have, and, and I don't know if there's an easy answer to this, is how long do you have to go? <laughs> you know, you're talking about the Tour de France being three weeks. It's really hard. It's an overreach situation. For most guys, it's a non-functional overreach situation. How long would, well, they're not a good example maybe to bring up here, but for the average person, how long do they have to go in a non-functional overreach situation to tip over the edge and it to become overtraining syndrome? Is, is it not that easy to answer that question, I would assume? Well, I do think one of the important points was the every definition that I read said there needs to be some sort of concurrent stressor. Yeah. So I actually think that there's a certain point you can train yourself as hard as you want you can put yourself deep into non-functional overreach, but I think at some point you're going to shut down uh, before you hit that true overtraining syndrome without other factors involved. Dr. Siler, would you agree with that, or do you think you can truly train yourself just with over, just with training too hard, get yourself to that state? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I suspect that there have been cases of just a pure uh, an overtraining situation that's occurred just as a function of continuously doubling down on the training and i think that's where that's why this is a bit less or i, I hope a lot less prevalent now the, the overtraining syndrome this this really severe state because there's been so much discussion about it that i think coaches and, and athletes are more sensitive to it that you cannot solve every hmm. training problem with more training right right it's good to recognize but that fact. There was a there was there had the, you know there have been periods where that has been the default for the athlete and the coach. Well, buddy, you just need to go harder. You know, you just get pick yourself up. Let's go. So that's unfortunately that gestalt has has maybe has pushed some athletes into overtraining when really there was no reason for it to happen. In other words, there wasn't that additional stressor, but of course the additional stressors come in. I think, you know, for example, in the university sports settings where you've got athletes, you know, scholar athletes that are trying to make grades and all these things at the same time and, and, and get the economy to work out for themselves and all this, then yeah, those are ripe scenarios for overtraining conditions or overtraining, you know, to, to slide into that overtraining state. And you throw in a little eating disorder issues, and then you've got a perfect storm. I hate to say it, but a, a place where that attitude of, oh, you're, you're not performing, train harder, is still quite prevalent is high school sports. Mm. You see a oh, lot sure. of high school coaches like, toughen up, you know, just, and, and they don't recognize when their athletes are needing burned rest. You know, and now I just use the term burned out. You, know? uh, you were the first one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Would I owe you a beer now? But anyway, yeah. Yes. They do slide into each other. You know, the, the, there's overlap in here, the mental and the physical. But you, maybe you should tell your story. Yeah, Trevor. Yeah, exactly. I did this in the 90s. And this was back, I had no understanding of the science. I was that dumb 20-something kid that was, 
well, I'm going to go train really hard because that's going to make me stronger. And when I started to see the drop in my performance, I went, oh, well, that's because I'm not fit enough. So I need to train even harder. Um, and actually, so even though I said there, there seems to be, there needs to be something concurrent, I'm not immediately thinking of anything that was concurrent. I just trained myself into the ground. Was this post-college? Or yes, this yeah. was after college. And so there was a week that I really remember where the, it just flipped. It started with, we had, I was living in Boston at the time. We had a Tuesday night race and I, I was really struggling and I couldn't do my intervals. So I just like, I'm going to go to this race. I'm going to turn things around. <laughs> I'm at the race. And back then I actually, believe it or not, I had a good sprint. I had a good one minute effort. And there's this really steep one minute climb early in this race. So I was like, okay, I'm going to attack on that climb and see what I can do. I'm going to break away. I'm going to show myself. I'm going to show them that, that I'm, I'm back. <laughs> and then I looked around and realized we're 40 minutes past that climb. And I had literally just... Uh, amnesia. I could not... amnesia. I spent the rest of the race trying to remember there was 50 minutes of that race. I do, never, I could not remember it all. Uh, then it was just downhill. A couple days later, I got in my car and I couldn't drive because my feet were shaking so much, I couldn't control the pedals. Uh, I, I, I'll give you the very short version, but I ended up going to the doctor. Most doctors don't understand overtraining syndrome. Yeah. They just assumed I was depressed, put me on an antidepressant. Uh, that led to really bad places. And that's actually been shown that in, when you're overtrained, there is an imbalance of serotonin and, and tryptophan. And so they put me on a serotonin inhibitor, which mm. made things even worse. Um, two days after they put me on the, the antidepressant, which was also, it was a combination antidepressant, anti-anxiety. I had an anxiety attack, a panic attack, which I've never had before. And went to the hospital, thought I was dying. <laughs> Jeez. Um, this ultimately, I got so dysfunctional, I actually ended up at the Mayo Clinic. I ended up there for three weeks, and they were testing me for ALS, MS, conditions like that, because I had out-of-control shaking. Mm. Like, my fingers wouldn't stop shaking, my feet wouldn't stop shaking, couldn't ride a bike at that point. Um, and at the end of it, they just said, you have chronic fatigue syndrome and sent me home because again, they did nobody in the, most people in the medical community who aren't sports doctors don't understand overtraining. Mm -hmm. How does it, I mean, that's a interesting question. How does it compare to chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, so that's one of the reviews I read about overtraining said it is actually one of those things that is a diagnosis of exclusion because it looks like so many other conditions. Mm -hmm. And I just had a host of symptoms that you know, when I would explain to the doctors, they just go, we don't know. I did basically did not ride a bike for a year after that. I couldn't get on and ride. Like I could commute. That was about it. So I pretty much thought my cycling was, was done. It was over. A year later, I decided, no, I want to get back to cycling and, and tried. And it was a year. Well, so at the start of it, I would get on my bike. I would go up for an hour, easy ride, like averaging 13, 14 miles an hour, super easy. And that was all I could handle. And I would come home and I would get... <laughs> 
I would get the shakes back. Wow. My digestive system would start really bugging me. I would get headaches. And it just took an hour ride of that. And I finally just went, I, I want to be a cyclist. So every day I went out, did my hour easy ride, come home that night, I'd be dysfunctional. You know, all those symptoms, headaches, sweating, shaking, digestive this system shutting down. sounds familiar to your dysfunctions now, though, interestingly enough. That's, <laughs> so I do suffer from migraines, and I do think that's one of the, the lasting effects. Yeah, wow. So I don't remember having migraines before that. I went through that for a while before I finally started to be able to train, actually train. For several years after that, I was always scared to take more than a day off a bike. Because if I took several days off of the bike... I'd have about a week of those post-ride strange symptoms again. Mm -hmm. So I, I was just always terrified of, of, of rest for a while. There are some effects that just never went away. Like I said, before that happened, we joke about how bad a sprinter I am. Yeah. I actually was a sprinter before that. And now you're not at all. I came back and I was a different type of rider. Hmm. A couple questions come to my mind. And I know that this you can't apply your situation to anyone else's because everyone's different. But I'm curious, again, back to that question of how long did you push yourself before that you went, got to that race and that switch turn? And then the second question would be, and this is maybe a cautionary tale or a cautionary note will be in there. How does that compare to the training you do now? Because I think I know the answer and it was far less, but you were a different person then. Right. I did not know how to train and I was not. Yeah, I, actually, the truth is I train harder now, but I know my limits. I know what I can handle. And as you said, I'm a much fitter rider now. But the year before that happened to me, I had a really good year. You know, I, I was just starting to take up bike racing and I was having my going into the local races and winning them and, and started to have that dream of, of making a, a career out of this. So the following year was, I'm going to take this seriously. And I, right from the start, it was train really hard. And I took that approach of every, every time I'm on the bike, I'm going hard. Mm -hmm. The idea of going slow, why would you ever do that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Basically, everything we talk about on the show, Dr. Seiler, everything that you have written about, I didn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. I was We're the not. intensity all the time. And very quickly started getting fatigued. And, and you know me. Yep. Uh, my stubbornness mm -hmm. and I just went nah keep going yep yep head keep. down keep smashing it and I just went out every day and no matter how miserable I felt even when I couldn't do the intervals I would just get angry at myself and try to force them out yeah try to push them and it was probably it was definitely months yeah. of that before I started experiencing those things that I told you about and even then I tried to push it until like I said I was shaking so bad couldn't sleep. I, I, I hit a point where I actually just couldn't get on a bike anymore. So that's overtraining. That is <laughs> yeah, sounds like something it. Sounds like fundamentally it. different from when we were talking about overreach. And your recovery, is that typical that it would take months to years, more likely years to come back from something like this, that extreme? I have a few friends who have also experienced overtraining to that extreme and heard similar things. It took years and also had them say there are things that never, like I was a different rider, mm -hmm. never the same after that. And like I said, I was certainly the same. I was more that sprinter, one minute effort type. Now I'm more the pure endurance with no big top end. Wow. Interesting. So there were some just 
physiological, biological changes that took place. Yep. And there are, there are people who experience overtraining and never, you know, probably because they hated the experience so much, never, never come back. Right, right, yep. Don't do this, people. Don't do this to yourself. Don't do what I do. Don't, yeah, be smarter. <laughs> be smarter, train smarter, listen to this podcast more, whatever it takes. Just don't go to that extreme place. I'm hearing a number of things. That, number one, uh, I think, yeah, you should not directly try to correlate the development over training with the actual training volume uh, because you can do a lot of training volume and never get overtrained if you manipulate intensity and rest appropriately. Mm -hmm. That's what you didn't do. And so you can get overtrained on 15 hours a week and, and do marvelously on 25 hours a week with the difference being how those hours are being distributed. And, and I, you know, I, I gotta say, I, I, what I find is that the appropriate intensity distribution is a pretty strong uh, vaccine against overtraining. Um, pardon the use of the term right now, but that's, I think that's one of the key things you did wrong or, and that a lot of athletes who become overtrained do wrong. And that is, you develop this monotone, high-intensity stimuli, you know, that you're pushing pretty hard every darn day. And that, just lots of different research on, on animals, on humans, on, that is just a great recipe for overstressing and, in a sense, uh, what should I say, burning out that organism whether it's a, a rat or a human or a horse. If we go way back to the, our beloved general adaptation syndrome, which is kind of, that was Hanselia, the, the, the idea of the alarm stage, the resistance stage and the exhaustion stage, you know, in training, we're doing alarm and resistance, bouncing back and forth all the time, titrating those, trying to push you know, and, and the body, every kind of adaptation the body has, whether it's being able to handle alcohol better or being able to handle heat better or altitude or training, they all have the same kind of these stages. And what Hanselia showed when his, in his early rat studies, you know, he put a bunch of, he took, he started with a hundred rats. He put them in a cold room. So he was, the stress they had to deal with was cold it was colder than they were used to and it stressed them but they adapted and and so they first had this alarm stage and then they had this uh resistance stage where their bodies handled they lived in the cold but he he would take different rats out at different times and and he was able to show that there was also even the rats that got well adapted if they kept being stressed long enough, they fell apart. They, fa they, they failed. Their bodies eventually failed them because of that chronic stress. So then they fell into this exhaustion stage. So, you know, we, we have the capacity to deal with stress for a long time, but, but, we're, but all organisms have a limitation on how long we can handle that repetitive stress. And, and then you can exhaust the, 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 the athlete or the organism. And one of the best ways to do it is with a monotone stress load. Yep.
So I guess, you know, if I was going to ever try to make that connection between overreaching, overtraining, and training intensity distribution, all those things we tend to talk about, it, I think the common denominator is the uh, ability of the athlete and the coach to, to create the appropriate variation in those, in, you know, in that intensity profile. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. Going back to what Chris was saying, I put myself into that severe overtraining state. I was probably only training 10, 11 hours a week. Yeah. Um, and got to the point later on when I was training right, where I was training 20 plus a week and fine. Yeah. And, exactly. and the, the quick little bit I'll finish my story with just to tell you how stupid I am. Um, <laughs> my first mentor, Glenn Swan, before I overtrained, I went and told him my plan and my plan was stupid. It was, it was train hard all the time. And since that wasn't even enough, I had this great idea of I was going to wear a weight vest because that was going to make the training even harder. <laughs> nice. And Glenn, when I told him all this, got so frustrated. He, he started like, he was trying to explain to me how stupid this was and he couldn't get the words out. <laughs> he didn't so he slap just goes, you across the face. Wait here, <laughs> goes into his back room at his shop, comes out with this big, board with a graph on it, which is the graph of the diminishing returns, but also showing the uh, increasing risk of burnout and, and overtraining. Uh, so he explained all that to me. I listened intently and then walked out of there and went, well, what does the old man know? Mm -hmm. Then put myself through that overtraining and went, apparently he knows a lot. And went back to him after that and said, okay, re-explain this graph to me which he did. And then when I was able, as I said, once I was able to, to train again, I did almost all low intensity. So I was up 18, 20 hours a week. And that first year, once I was able to do any sort of intensity, I'd only do one intensity session a week. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yeah. And completely turned things around. So I couldn't agree with you more that the distribution is such a huge part of, of this equation. Interesting to see how awful overtraining syndrome truly is yeah. and, and how long-term, if not chronic, the effects can be. And we didn't even really talk about the mental side of it for you, but I'm sure it was pretty devastating for a while. That was not fun, but the worst part of it was sitting in the hospital having needles shoved into my nerves to see if the nerves actually functioned or not. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> Well, you guys, you know, I, in, in preparation for this, I had a chat with a, a former national team. He was the national team cross-country skiing coach at one time. He, he's got quite a few Olympic and world championship medalists to his credit. Um, but he also just maybe for whatever reason, it may be kind of his, his way, but he was very good at working with athletes that, that did fall into this overtraining syndrome he didn't put them there but they would come to him after and and he would work with them so i had a little chat with him you know i said well what was you know what's the formula how do you bring them back you know if if you can bring them back and and it was interesting because most of what he said was all about psychology all about relationships all about you know and then he kind of got into a little bit of the actual intensity stuff but he says look the first thing you got to think about is it's going to be this it's an elite athlete that's been used to all this and they are at an all-time low uh, mentally 
uh, because everything they understand about their bodies has been turned upside down. Mm -hmm. You know, he said in the worst case scenario, they're struggling. They are fatigued going out to the post box. And he says, so, so you take an, a, a person that has been in a, a high level performer and they don't recognize their body and the way it's responding. And so he said, look, the first thing you got to have is you got to have some one person that you trust, a support person that you too are going to go into this process together. You know, and, and he was saying that they are, they will need often somebody to talk to and somebody who can help them recalibrate uh, from their old way of examining themselves and evaluating their performance to a different calibration during that recovery, or else they'll never get there. Because he says, you're going to have, they're going to have to celebrate very small victories in that buildup process, which you were talking about going yeah. out for, you know, 20 minutes yep. and coming home and feeling exhausted but saying, well, yeah, but 20 was better than the 10 I could do last week. Sounds very, very much like coming back from a, a severe injury of uh, some other kind, whether it's a broken bone or, or something else. It, it, you know, those small victories are the stepping stones that bring you back. Right. And, and, and as Trevor alluded to, that it, the volume comes before the intensity. You know, letting just... Uh, being able to get to an hour to maybe two hours before you even think about some small surges where you say, all right, well, now we're going to go up for 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds up into that kind of threshold zone. And then we're going to come back down. Yep. You know, and, and, and if we do that once or twice or, you know, in this workout and we come home and now, oh, no, you feel, you feel more exhausted tonight, you know, <laughs> cause it's tougher, you know, and, but it's just that very careful titration that he described of volume intensity and then, and then being satisfied with those, that progress, because it will, you know, it can get better. You've shown it, it does get better, but you have to do something very different than what got you there in the first place. Yep. You know, you have to break your own instincts in terms of trying to get, trying to recover quickly, trying to do it too fast, because that will almost certainly put you back. That, that was his, you know, a lot of what he was telling me, it, it, this can work. It, it, and it does go, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the end of a career. It, it, good things can happen, but it's a very careful process. And, and you're comparing it to a severe you know, bone injury or something that, yeah, I think that's, that's real. That's reasonable to, you know, you're it. I, I can remember when I had knee surgery, uh, I had the uh, patella tendon rupture, you know, come off the bone and, and I, man, I, I thought after that surgery for, for months and months, I thought I'll never be the same. I'll never yeah. function, you know, but it just slowly got better. And, and that's the thing. The body can heal. The, the nervous system, the endocrine system can restabilize, but it has to be just co coaxed there very gently uh, over time. For a month, I had a rule that I could not break a 123 heart rate. Hmm. I can't remember why I landed on 123, but I always remember the number. And my max heart rate was close to 200 at the time. 
it was super, super easy. Is there, is there any um, data to suggest what type of athlete is most prone to overtraining? Amateur, professional, veteran, elite, totally beginner? Not that I know of. I mean, obviously, I actually, Trevor kind of proved me wrong because I've, I've tended to say, look, if you're not training at least 10 hours a week, you probably can't get truly overtrained. But I guess if all 10 of those training hours are at, threshold plus intensity every workout then i guess you can <laughs> you 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 proved me wrong trevor <laughs> uh, not in the way i wanted to <laughs> yeah not the best of ways all right well that's overtraining we taught we said we were going only going to talk a little bit about it but it, it's it you know in some ways a pretty fascinating syndrome it's it's not pleasant but it's fascinating if an athlete has trained, has prepared themselves and they've planned a season and they've, there's some highlights and there's some keys, you know, key big events and that, I don't think it's that unnatural to expect, I would almost call it a functional burnout at the end of the season. Meaning that the, you know, they are kind you know, towards the end of the season, if everything's gone well, they get past the championship event, it goes well. And they're pretty much not too motivated. They are burned out temporarily. Well, that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I experienced that with my daughter last year. And I said, well, that's, that's all right. Now you're going to take an entire month off. And, and so, you know, I don't know if we want to touch on that, but the fact, you know, Kipchoge, the great marathon, he takes a month off after one of those major builds and, and major races. The, the ability to, to allow yourself to do that is, is perhaps kind of connected to this idea of burnout. Between seasons, it's really important to have that unload period as much mentally as physically. So maybe, you know, maybe this cycle of kind of a, a buildup and a burn down or a burnout at the end of the season, there is a natural ebb and flow of the enthusiasm, the energy of the athlete that that is okay it's okay to be tired it's okay and i think you know particularly collegiate athletes they hit the end of a season the semester they've got their final exams at the same time they've got championship events so it's it's i think it's normal you know to feel burned out but what's not normal is to not listen to that and give yourself a freaking break literally um you know, for a period of time and allow that mental energy and physical energy to, to return. How many seasons would you say you've raced ridden Trevor, where you haven't had some amount of burnout at the end of the year? Is it just almost an inevitable thing? I've had a few where I haven't, mm -hmm. but those are usually actually pretty unsatisfying years. Mm -hmm. It's because I, I feel like I finished the season with a little bit left in the tank. Like I didn't accomplish everything. Yeah. I like to finish the season where I go, yeah, I'm ready to hang up the bike and not look at it for three weeks. Right. Yeah. And I, I bet a lot of people feel that same way. It's kind of like the, the energy stores that they have reach that part of the season and they, they meet up and you're like, okay, it's time, you know, yep. and it's hopefully at the end of the year and not in May because <laughs> that's when you get into trouble, you know, sometimes. I would say that's the only danger is if you're starting to have that feeling in the middle of the season. And when I have an athlete experience that, my general recommendation is 
let's take a week off the bike and get that little mini rest. Yeah, yeah. Reset some things. Get hungry again. And, and that's a great, I think these two, the, the physical aspect and the mental aspect of these long train, these long performance years uh, are similar. The, you know, at a high level because of uh, television and World Cup seasons and so forth, the athletes have a lot more competitions than maybe they did decades ago. Um, and it's hard to maintain the, the training during the season because you're going from race to race uh this is at least true in some of the you know like cross-country skiing and and, and di- running and so forth is these world cup schedules have stretched longer and longer so sometimes what athletes are doing is they're just hopping off the train at some point they're they're not they're jumping off of the world cup cycle for a, a couple of weeks in order to both recover mentally but also to just put in a a volume period so you know and and this the the two go together so I, i'm seeing a lot of that you know it's it that's what we did with with skaters when we were working the speed skaters is they just you know the best ones realized well look you know it's not my job to be at every race to to, to satisfy a television audience if i don't give myself some time in the middle of this season i won't be there at the end where i want to be um, so I do think that mid-season burnout issue can be uh, a factor when there's a lot of races, a lot of competitions that you want to do well at, and you, you have to make a few choices. You may need to go against your wishes and not compete, you know, and, and give yourself a little mid-season, uh, what, should we, what should we call it, a, a hiatus. Let's turn our attention to overreaching. Because in a way, this is where some people out there can actually benefit from uh, a, a pos- the positive side of, of doing this right. So shall we, shall we talk a bit more about this topic of overreaching? So I just want to throw one quick thing out and then Dr. Seiler, take it away. But there's been some recent research on functional overreaching, really questioning is it necessary? And I think one of the biggest studies that keeps getting referenced is this 2014 study led by Dr. Aubrey. Actually, I don't know if it's doctor, his first author, but we'll, I'll say Dr. Aubrey. How do you spell that? A-U-B-R-Y. Very good. I think I got it right. I think you did. <laughs> uh, and he, so this study, they, they tried to they increase the load on the athletes trying to put them into this overreach state. But they found that some went into the definition of functional overreach. Others did not. And they were looking at in terms of was, so everybody reported, yes, I'm tired. I'm fatigued. So they really talked about this difference between acute fatigue and, and, and overreached. And their differentiator was the overreach athlete saw a decrement in performance. Then they had a two-week taper after that and found the ones who didn't see a drop in their performance had a supercompensation after the taper. The ones who were functionally overreached by their definition just went back to baseline. They actually didn't see a supercompensation. So this has raised this question of, is an overreach actually necessary to improve? And that's really the, the thing I wanted to bring up. So please, Dr. Seiler, take it away. Yeah, and I haven't, I have to say, I haven't done any 
intervention studies where we have purposefully tried to create uh, an overreaching state. And if I talk about the daughter who I coach, I <laughs> do not purposefully try to put her at any time in an overreached state. Uh, maybe I think it's too early in her career to, to, to play that game yet. I, I, we just focus on doing things well. And, you know, so I, I, I just am going on feeling here that, again, my feeling has been based on all the research that we've done and lots of, you know, just being around athletes that, um, you know, if we go back to that hierarchy of, of training needs, doing some type of a functional overreach protocol where you purposefully increase the load more than you know is good for you or you you know you know it's going to have negative consequences at least temporarily that's going to be way up on top of the hierarchy that it's it's going to be the kind of thing i'm going to do with an athlete only after all the good basic normal training process has has no is no longer creating continued progress does that make sense Yep. Yeah. You know, it, you know, that, that would be my, because these functional overreach protocols where you really try to push the athlete into a state of, you know, a depressed performance state, get them really tired, try to get the super comp. It is a high risk strategy and it, and it can work, but it, it you need, and you need to really know the athlete. Um, you know, and I know, for example, an athlete that we, that did this, successfully was a guy named Olaf Tufta. He won the gold in rowing in uh, both 2004, 2008. And he didn't win a lot of World Cup races, but he he was able to do just a perfect super comp period before both the Athens Olympics and the um, uh, Beijing Olympics and win the gold medal in the, in the single sculling in rowing. And, and he that's what he did. And he he had it timed so well that he was still recovering from his overreach protocol or like we call it a super comp protocol. He was still recovering in the first rounds of the <laughs> competition, but he gambled that, you know, he was good enough to get through the early rounds without being at a hundred percent. So they were literally part of his timing now, so then, yeah, man, you're you're really you're really pushing things when you're using the early races as part of your recovery right. towards a super comp, you know, final where you win the gold medal. Yeah. But but he 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 pulled that off twice. That's that's uh, so living on the edge. It, it's living on the edge, but it was also it was an athlete that had been in the game ten years and had a coach athlete interaction where they, they were willing to take that chance and they, and they, and they learned how to do it. You know, they found, you know, he knew his body really well and he, and he was able to make it work. Yeah. So I'm not saying at, at the highest levels of performance, you know, that those are the kinds of things you do that separates gold and fourth place often. But for most of us, uh, I think you need to focus on getting the, the, the basic things right before you do those high risk type 
protocols. You know, if, if for a lot of people, they're just going to mess themselves up. Now, to that end, if I wanted to try an overreach protocol or, you know, try to create an overreach situation, I might then use a block periodization model where I would put in a block of, for example, higher intensity work or it could be a volume block, you know, but that's how I would, I would use the block approach. If, and what I mean by that is a, a, a limited period, like a week where you're doing more high intensity sessions than you normally would. You're, you're over, you're stacking the deck with uh, high intensity sessions for a certain number of days, like a, a week. So if, if normal for me is to do two hard sessions, I might do five, you know, that would be a big surge for me and I'm going to get really tired, but if I get it right, then I'm going to get a bounce, you know, 10 days later. Yeah. So that's, I think that's where we see block periodization being used in conjunction with a functional overreach process. It, it can be successful. And I think it is important here. You met, you said this right at the beginning of the episode, but just to remind people, there's a difference between fatigue and a functional overreach. You do need to stress yourself to improve. So oh, yeah. don't don't think if you go out and do a hard weekend, don't go, oh, no, I'm functionally overreached. <laughs> right. right. Uh, most of the studies that's, that look at functional overreach, their protocol is at least two weeks, generally four weeks. So this is an extended period of pushing intensity, pushing volume, and, and putting yourself in a fatigue state for an extended period of time. Right. And, and, and I certainly wouldn't do it unless I had a good base that, you know, you've got, yeah. and I would, and I would start with a healthy athlete, you know, no injuries, no infections, good base, you know, and, and feeling good. And then say, all right, you're in a position where we, we can take this risk of initiating this two or three week period where we're going to really go hard and then look for the bounce, like you're saying. So uh, I think you need to check off some boxes with your athlete, you know, before you agree to, to do this procedure. It's like a, it's like an elective surgery, you know, <laughs> you know, this may go wrong. You, so you need to be aware of the risks, but if you're going to do it, then you do it approach, you do it correctly. You do it according to the demands, which means you're going to have to push you're going to let them get pretty tired and for a, for an extended number of days. Pesa McKelvin, host of the Adventure Stash, has had a successful career as a professional mountain biker. So we asked him if he had experience with overreaching or even overtraining. I mean, from an from a, a burnout standpoint, not really. I mean, mostly when I felt quote unquote burned out, it's it was when I was younger and it was when I had preconceived notions about how a couple of races were going to go. And I just really, what I thought underperformed and questioned my place in the sport and, um, decided I was going to quit for like a day, <laughs> never lasted long, but, um, that's kind of the closest I've been to burning out in regards to just totally overcooking myself physically. Uh, I have, I'd say there's kind of only one time that's happened and I was able to sort of abort, uh, 
when I saw it coming, and that was when I tried to do the Leadville 100 and the Breck Epic Stage Race back to back a few years ago. Um, I had, and I kind of should have known, but I had a a career race um, at the Leadville 100 um, where I got in this kind of hilarious battle with the the current world champion at the time, Alban Lakata, and because. I was going, you know, to the line with the rainbow stripes. I dug to a place that I haven't really before. Um, and then the very next day tried to start uh, hmm. one of the most brutal six day stayed races there is. And I think it might've worked okay, except for the fact that they're both so high. And so you just don't really recover hardly at all when you're sleeping at almost 10,000 feet. Um, Right. So I was just, I was digging into a hole, digging into a hole. And it got to the point where, um, not only, uh, like muscularly was I kind of falling apart, but I just, I didn't have it in me to keep trying. Um, and then also I started developing kind of a little bit of knee tendonitis, which I hadn't had for years and years and years. And for all intents and purposes, my body was just completely falling apart. And so, um, on day three, at the end of day three, we pulled the plug on that. And it took me a while to, to come back around um, much longer than you'd expect for four days of work. Um, and I, I think that was the closest I've gotten to, to really screwing up <laughs> from a workload standpoint. Um, in terms of, you know, functional overreaching, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's such an interesting one because you know you wonder about uh events like kanza where you get so so tired and still have four hours to go and it's hmm. like is is that is that beneficial like it is that pushing you to a place where your body is forced to adapt and and you kind of unlock something that you wouldn't otherwise and with kanza i haven't noticed that i haven't noticed a massive rebound um, in fitness, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, um, maybe once I'm a little older and I have more, more hours in my legs, maybe I will, but that's a scenario where I don't think that ginormous effort like that pays dividends necessarily. Um, personally, I think events in the five to six, maybe seven hour range, I have noticed that. So for example, last year, I really decided to to commit myself to the gravel scene just because it's a you know a world that's exploding to a degree that's hard to ignore and so all of a sudden I had a whole lot of events that were six six and a half hours um, rather than the the three to four hours that I'm used to um, and we did this white rim project which involved a, a five and a half all out time trial for all intents and purposes so I had maybe I don't know seven or eight efforts like that that previous years that would have been my single biggest effort of the year and there'd only be one and we did quite a few of them and this preseason the the degree to which my depth has improved is really amazing like the fatigue resistance is is definitely a step up it's not like you know year to year progress there was absolutely a leap where it just takes so much more for me to get tired and I have to assume that it's, that it's uh, a lot of those, those bigger efforts and the fact that we did, you know, six or seven of them in regards to more training camp stuff. I can't think of a, a scenario where I've really 
like tested the border of of just deep fatigue like that now and then you'll there'll be some some stage races that kind of get you there I, I did the mongolia bike challenge um a handful of years ago and that was six kind of six just six ish hour days in a row um but there was a lot of dirt road so it was more of like a a road race almost in some ways. And I think with those ebbs and flows, it was just the right amount of load. And I had a big leap in fitness after that. But I mean, beyond just like traditional big stacking weeks, I haven't gotten too, too crazy with Mm -hmm. it, I wouldn't say. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. What's great with Whoop is that every day when you get up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day. The Whoop app has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals worked out optimally for the level of intensity your body is signaling it can handle, perfect for working out at home. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and enter FASTTALK at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Loop. One thing that you mentioned early in your description here, Dr. Seiler, was the fact that it it, uh, it takes critical oversight by the uh, by the coach to get this right. But I'm curious to know. Maybe maybe this is more a question for for Trevor, who I believe does use functional overreaching quite successfully, I would say. It's a partnership. The The athlete has to be aware of things. It can't be that the coach is just monitoring things because there are, uh, it's hard to see it in the moment when you're actually approaching this functional overreaching state. Is that correct? So the athlete is an active, willing participant in this pr- procedure. There are certain things that I look for. So again, they're still struggling with the definition and how to measure these. But as a coach talking from experience, some of the things I look for are attitudinal changes. I think that drop in performance is a big one. So if you want to differentiate, I'm just a little acutely fatigued from I am now functionally overreached. If you're going out and doing intervals and you just can't hit the same wattage, that you're used to hitting, you're, you're getting into that functional overreach. If I have an athlete say, I've done some hard work, I'm fatigued, but they can go out and still do the intervals with the same quality, that's where I say, well, we're still relatively in the safe zone. And one in particular, there was actually even a study on this, is neuromuscular excitability. So I know several coaches who, they'll look at that really short 10, 20 second sprint, and if you see a big drop in power there, that that's an early warning sign. And as I said before, one of the things I ask athletes to, to keep an eye on is heart rate. Mm-hmm. Because when they start getting a little deep, that's when you see that blunting of the heart rate. If they go, I went out for a ride and I just couldn't seem to get my heart rate up, 
that's where I go, okay, if we're intentionally doing a functional overreach, okay, we're getting close to where we need the rest, but this is, you're, you're now in that, that overreach. If I'm doing normal training with them and I don't want a functional overreach and they go, hey, my heart rate seems low, I can't seem to get it up, that's where I'm like, off the bike. Yeah, yeah. Don't care what the plan is. We're resting. Yeah. I mean, it brings up so many questions and I know this is, this is where coaching becomes an art because there's not so much science to, to give direction here. So you're talking about you're wanting functional overreach. One session you go out, you're hitting all your target numbers. Another week later, you do that same interval session. You see that the numbers are lower than you would expect them to be if everything were quote-unquote normal. It, how much is too much? Do you do that session if you're looking for the functional overreach, or do you pull the plug on that session, or do you do that one session and then pull the plug? I mean, I, I would <laughs> probably use a description, I flirt, but I don't push. Okay. <laughs> so again, if we're in normal training mode and I see drop in quality in their intervals, I see that drop in their, their heart rate, it's, okay, we're adjusting the plan. You need rest. You're not where we want you to be. If we're intentionally doing that functional overreach, I want to see a little bit of that. I might push a day or two, and normally what I do is, if we're doing a block, I'll start with the intensity. When we start to see that fatigue, I might say, let's do a day or two of some, some volume without the intensity. And then it's, now we take a big rest. Mm -hmm. But I'm not gonna push them when I start seeing those signs. I'm not gonna push them for another week or two. Yeah. And if I chime in as a 55-year-old kind of athlete-ish, um, <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> such a flattering description of yourself, Doctor Seiler. Don't you go send me your numbers. You you have fantastic numbers, so you you yeah, should give well, yourself credit. He he works with I, Olympians, so fair. you know it's all relative. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing is, man. When I see their powers, I definitely get perspective on my abilities. So <laughs> anyway, but at my age, at fifty five, at you know, training, I'm training ten hours a week on good weeks. Maybe a really good week is twelve, thirteen. A uh, bad week is seven. Um, so I'm in that, you know, area. If I do three, you know, either like a Zwift race or a hard group ride, if I do three hard sessions in a row, then I then I am, I'm experiencing that I can't get my heart rate up by that third one, yeah. you know, and how much, maybe five beats, but that's my signal. That's my limit in that ebb and flow of, you know, I'll do these little occasional experiments on myself to see what I can handle. And that's, I can do two hard sessions in a row, you know, two back to backs, but the third one already, then my body's starting to put on the brakes a little bit uh, at my age. Now I suspect for younger athletes, they, you know, that in general, they may handle more before the brakes start to come on. But in that, if I were going to be in, try to create a, a functional overreach, then I might push that to four or five, but I, I don't think I, I don't think I could handle much more than that and come back within a week. You know, so that's kind of my feeling just based on lots of time spent, in a controlled setting in a room in my loft, 600 hours on Zwift, you know, <laughs> I've, I've measured myself quite a bit. And at, at my age, I can't handle more than three days in a row of, 
high intensity where I'm going above 90% of max heart rate. I think another important thing to point out, and this is more experiential, I've never seen this in a study, but certainly they, they have shown in the research when you're starting to push overreach, particularly non-functional overreach, you're going to see hormonal effects. You're going to see changes in your catecholamine response. You're going to see a whole variety of things mm -hmm. happen in your body. Basically, your body trying to deal with it's tired and you're still pushing it. And what I see in the early stages when somebody's starting to push non-functional overreach is variance. You're going to have days where you go out and you can't even do the interval work. But then two days later, you go out, the painkillers are flowing, and you all of a sudden mm -hmm. hit your best five-minute wattage that you've hit in the last six months. And I think right. that's what confuses a lot of athletes because mm -hmm. they're actually starting to get quite tired. They're pushing that right. non-functional overreach, but they have that one workout where they go, but that was amazing, so I can't be fatigued. Right. And they keep training. Yeah, I think that's an important thing is, is they're in, the inconsistency is a sign. Yes, that the body is 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 struggling a bit, and and so time to recovery is not as consistent as it should be. You don't have a, you don't you don't have, your internal clock is starting to get messed up. So I, I agree with that, and 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 even high performance athletes, you know, when they they've had an injury, they've had changes in their training load. That's one of the first things you see is the inconsistency of their performance. Typically, they're very consistent. You know, it's one or one percent plus minus on their powers, and then suddenly it's not. Now they're, you know, they're having these really bad days, and then the occasional good days, just like you say. So I think that is kind of a, a good warning sign to look at. Don't latch on to that one good day and go, well, "I'm still fine." It's got to be right. really hard to identify it as an inconsistent outlier day when you're in the midst of things, though, right? It is hard. And also remember, even when you're in normal training state, when you're not overreached at all, you're going to have bad days. Exactly. So don't worry too much about that. It, it's the trends. If you're going up and down a lot, bad sign. If you're just always down, really bad sign. <laughs> right, right, right. Periodic bad day, don't worry. What I always look for in the training process is I'm trying to help the athlete achieve low lows and high highs and what i mean by that is low intensity they should be have nice you know easy technique low low lactate low heart rate but also still have that mobilization ability so that their peak lactates their their max heart rate is still high and that if when the athlete is in a really ideal state, at least that's what we've seen with, you know, different speed, you know, speed skaters, middle distance and so forth, is they can go at a, you know, they can have low lactate at low intensity and really high lactate at high intensity when they need it. Um, and that means their system, they, they have full mobilization. They're, they're well-trained, they're fit, but they're also able to fully mobilize. The first thing that tends to disappear when they're getting into this overreach state is that top end. Now, max lactate is going down, max heart rate is going down, the body is starting to get this kind of, what, what do you want to call it, a sympathetic insensitivity. You, you're, you're not able to access the 
upper end of your sympathetic mobilization capacity. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. So the, uh, I'll, I'll just give a, a quick story as a, a bit of an example. 2010, I had just come back from Canadian Nationals, and I'd put myself in a bit of a, I, I'd like to say a functional overreach, but maybe it was pushing the, the, the non-functional. And I went to Dr. Samalan to get a, a test. So he was doing a, a ramp test, taking my lactates. And I'm looking at these lactates, they're like 0.7, 0.6, like really low. And I'm like, oh, great, I'm doing fantastic. And he stops me really early in the test. And he's like, your lactates are to the floor. You're exhausted. Go home. Don't touch your bike for a week and then mm-hmm. come back. Mm-hmm. He could see it. Yep. Yeah. Remember, when glycolysis is accelerated with a sympathetic signal, you know, that, so uh, they, that's, that connects them. So that if you're not able to turn on the juice, you know, you get that sympathetic response. There is a reason why glycolysis is depressed, lactates get lower. So, and le- but, but it, it, it can trick you because we tend to think of low lactate as always good. Right. Um, so unless you have that differential diagnosis or what, what you might want to call it, where you also are looking a bit or have an idea of what the what the upper end of the scale is because if it's probably also depressed then you've just got an athlete that can't turn on the motor uh and and but the they both look the same initially an athlete that's really fit that has you know a really good right shift of the lactate curve versus an athlete that can't mobilize they also initially look like they have a right shift of their lactate curve but it just turns out there's no, it doesn't go up. So that's why it looks like it's right shifted. It, they can't turn it on. They can't mobilize. So uh, the, you, you end up needing this kind of differential diagnosis, if that makes sense. You need to see what the lactate looks like at two different intensities, one low and one high. The question that comes to my mind, of course, and this was um, something you brought up earlier with one study in particular is, is it necessary to do this to yourself, to ride this razor's edge, to stretch this rubber band as close to breaking as possible and then come back from it to, to reach peak levels? Is this something that people should not do unless they know it works for them or at, unless they know it's, um, you know, they've got correct supervision and, and they know, uh, there's a team around them helping them understand where they're at as, as much as possible. This is advanced. Uh, when you are at a high level, you probably need this. It's kind of hard for me to imagine, but let's say I was an Olympic caliber athlete, top eight. And that means I've done some World Cups. I've, I've had a sixth place, a fifth place, a seventh place. I've never been on the podium. But my federation is sending me because because of my top eight finishes, I'm seen as a possible medal contender. Um, yeah, I'm going to take that shot. I'm going to I'm going to say, well, all right, the difference between me and and a goal and a, a bronze medal or Olympic or medal contention is about one percent consistently one and a half, but I, but I need, you know, I, I'm not going to cheat, but I, I'm willing to take a risk on a, a really tough, uh, super comp protocol because 
you know, eighth is, is wonderful, but I'm already in the Olympics. I've already made the team. Now I want to give myself a chance to do something extraordinary. So I think those are the kinds of situations where the, the effect, the, the, the benefit is so meaningful. The one or 2% you achieve can create such a big difference. Yeah. Then I'd go for that. Now, if I am an age grouper training for my first Ironman, and I want to have a good experience. I want to finish. I want to get under 11 hours or whatever the goal is. Then no, I'm not going to do something stupid like that. I'm going to, I'm not going to take that risk. I'm trying, I'm going to try to get on the starting line healthy and, and ready to give my best. But I'm, I don't think I would put myself in that high risk situation because there's too many things that can go wrong. And I, and I want to get through that race. Uh, with a good experience. So, so those are, you know, if I just use two different scenarios, uh, it would depend a bit on what is the, the risk to benefit, you know, or the benefit, you know, the, if, if it means the difference between eighth place and a bronze medal in the Olympics, yeah, probably I'm going to go for it. But if it, if I'm a age grouper, then I think I'm going to want to focus on being at the starting line, healthy and ready to give a great effort. The thing I, I'm going to quickly add, too, is let's put aside all this research that's saying there it, it might not actually be any more beneficial than just normal good training. And let's say, yes, for everybody doing this functional overreach produces benefits, there's still the execution and making sure you do it right and you have the self-awareness to do this right. And the example I'll give you is, I always have my athletes rate their races, A, B, and C. So C just being a typical race, B being a race that has some importance, and A race at like one or two a year, and that's their focus race. And I would say of all the races where I've that my athletes have won or podiumed at, I would say 90% of them were C races. Because you see when athletes start really focusing on a race, they get stressed they they start making different choices they start doing different things that can lead to bad choices and so my concern with people employing a functional overreach is even if if you did it perfectly you get, you're going to get that performance gain i see too many athletes that do it wrong that don't see the signs that don't have the support and end up going to the race non-functionally overreached and performing poorly well trevor i you do this. You you use functional overreaching to get to where you want to to be, and you've done it for years. Are you going to change anything about that, or do you think you know it so well that, and you know it works for you, and you know how to do it that it it's okay, or or what? How how is this? Me personally, yeah, you you personally. I'm still going to do what I do, but what I realized reading a lot of this is I don't use it that much, mm. maybe once a year, okay. twice a year. Mostly what I'm doing is just that acute fatigue. These quote-unquote training camps that you do, four, four days, five days, not really enough to be considered they're, functional overreach. They're really just more acute fatigue. Yeah. So, for example, when I build towards mm. Tobago, I'll do that three-week mm big build where as dr siler was saying I'll, I'll do three four even five days of intensity and really fatigue myself for a long time uh, but i know it, having done this for years because i've done it wrong a lot mm -hmm. 
I've learned the signs of when I'm, I'm off track, that I feel somewhat comfortable being able to do it. Neil Henderson, the head of sports science for Wahoo, has had a lot of experience coaching athletes through some very fatiguing training and even big races such as Grand Tours. So, he had a lot to offer on how to identify fatigue and how to prevent overreaching and overtraining. What is your definition of overreaching versus overtraining? And do you use, intentionally take your athletes into any sort of overreach or, or overtrained state? Yeah. Um, so kind of a, a difference between an overreaching and overtraining is with uh, a reasonable rest and recovery, with over that overreaching, you're going to see an improvement. With overtraining, with rest and recovery, there is no improvement and you're only going to see decreased performance. So when we apply, you know, when we're training, we actually get worse. Uh, that's part of the things we have to disturb homeostasis. We have to stress our bodies. We initially get worse. It's when you recover that there's adaptation and improvement. That's what an overreaching or an overload achieves. Overtraining is such that you've done so much work that when you rest and recover, you do not get any better. And so that's kind of the big differentiator as I see things in that, that realm. So in that sense, there is a benefit to overreaching. As a matter of fact, it sounds like you're saying it's almost a necessity. Yeah, it's a component of things. Now, you, you don't have to have, you know, overreaching consistently, always, all the time, but you have to have some, some level of that to, to improve. You know, it, it's just part of, the, part of the nature of the beast. Now, how, when you're working with your athletes, how often would you intentionally put them into an overreach state? And how do you know when to say, yep, that's enough. Stop, go rest. Yeah. So I would say that kind of overload or overreach state is uh, a few days each month where they're in that, that point of it. And uh, it's, you have to be careful of how, how, long you stay in that state. And so it's literally only a few days uh, out of a month or so. So towards the end of a training block, or occasionally we'll do a little bit of overreach on the front end of a block and then pull back a little and then kind of be at a more maintained level of, of stress that, that they can tolerate and adapt. What do you look for to say, okay, you've been in that state for a couple of days. Are there numbers or is it just your athlete saying, yeah, I'm tired? Uh, a couple things that we typically see that that depression and heart rate for for high intensity efforts when we see that dropping more than you know say six or eight beats per minute from normal um, for a given effort that's clearly an indication and that's not going to be at like a steady state it's going to be more at a high high intensity type of effort um, and then actually comments in a training log. Uh, seeing, you know, three, four days of, of kind of those negative uh, feelings and everything feels bad, legs are heavy, da, 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 um, that kind of stuff for, for, you know, a day or two, not a problem when it's three, four days uh, in a row, uh, we're pretty well into that point and it's going to be time to pull out soon from that overload and recover. Okay. And honestly, not building rest into training schedules is, is honestly the biggest cause of, of getting there and staying there. So I pull back on training and recovery weeks much more, I think, than others. I may push forward a little bit harder. So some of those hard sessions are, are maybe harder than I've seen some other folks do, but then the rest and recovery is going to be a little bit bigger. So, so what do you mean by bigger? 
uh, like two, three days completely off the bike and then another three to five days of relatively easy recovery rides um, would be kind of an offloading recovery week. That's fairly typical. Love hearing you say that. And do you get the same thing I get from your athletes saying, but I'll detrain. That's too long. Yep. And, and it takes till they go through a few cycles till they start to embrace it. Uh, but some getting them to rest and recover is the hardest part of the training. Yep. You know, a lot of times I want to do the work. I want to work out. Yeah, great. Okay. Then you're going to have to also do the rest and you have to do it well. If you don't rest well, you can't, you're not going to adapt to this. You don't get better. We've had this long discussion. It's been very interesting, but, and I I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but it sounds like Dr. Seiler and for the most part, Trevor, you're actually saying 99.9% of the listeners of this show should probably stay away from it. There's probably some pros out there listening that maybe, you know, Tour de France riders that are listening. Hopefully there are, and they could do this and could reap the rewards. But everyone else really should stay away from this. They should know what it is. They might try it, but for the most part, they should probably stay away from it. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like the plague that you're trying to avoid. <laughs> but I just, but I, I just, I, I have such good faith in smart training, in doing, you know, in getting the intensity distribution right, and that that it solves so many problems. That I, I first want my athletes to do that well before we add this icing on the cake. You know, the the. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong metaphor because it is more risky. Like with my, if I go back to my daughter, she's, you know, got a series of races now coming up, Norwegian championship races in different events, a half marathon and 10,000 meter on the track and so forth. And, you know, for a lot of athletes, I think instead of talking about functional overreach protocols, it's just about peaking. They want to hit a good peak. They want to peak for their A race. But the problem is, is that they, maybe if they're like my daughter every race has the risk of becoming an a race in their head Mm. because they've always got something to prove either to themselves or others and that's where things get tough because you can't it's it's very difficult to peak week after week in fact you you basically by definition won't be able to correct so then I, you know, and I've had these conversations with her and I've said, look, I'm going to try to, what we're going to do is we're going to hold back on the throttle a little bit in training because the races themselves are part of your training stimuli. And I'm going to put you on the starting line in a good position to have a great day, but I'm not sure you're not probably not going to have a great day. All of those races but we're going to try to put you on the starting line close to a peak, close enough that the, the normal variation could, will give you hopefully out of four races, two that are going to be really good. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, so I just try to kind of prepare her mentally for that reality that that's kind of where we're at. And, and I think that's, that's a, that's an honest appraisal of how the body works and instead of trying to think that you're going to have such a 
perfect control over your peaking process that you're going to be able to achieve this exact peak race after race. Uh, now, this is a, you know, it may sound like I'm going a little bit off topic, but I, I, I think they're related. These, you know, we try to peak, the, the overreach protocol can be part of a peaking process. I, but, but in my training prescription, I don't want her to have any bad experiences during those hard interval sessions leading up to a big race, because I find them to be so important in telling her, her state of readiness that I wouldn't want to use them in a negative way at this stage in her career. Cause I don't think she could handle the psychology of having a bad interval session, but, but then hoping that it's, she's going to bounce back instead. I, you know, I wanted to have a good interval session that says, Hey, you're, you're where you want to be. We're, we're there. We're on track. Does that make sense? So, so maybe it has to do with where the athlete is in their physical and emotional development, their, their training, you know, how, because they've got to be able to deal with that mental frustration of not of their body not answering to their expectations when you do those overreaching situation like you do, Trevor. And and my 22 year old daughter is not that doesn't work for her psych psyche. I, I, my, that's my experience. She needs to have a good interval session where the leg where the 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 numbers look good. You know the the flip side of this the 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 getting it correct is really what your focus has been and at, for those who don't know our previous discussions th those three episodes i think it's been three at this point where we talked about polarized we talked a little bit more about high intensity we talked about um some other nuanced topics within that realm that's really what you're saying is go listen if you don't want to uh flirt with functional overreaching, if you want to quote-unquote train right, get the distribution right, go listen to those three episodes. And that's what we're talking about as an alternative here. Well, yeah, and I, and I don't want to sound, I mean, I, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I, I think that's true. And the other thing is I would say before you can use a functional overreach purposefully you need to make sure you're not in a chronic state of overreaching non-purposefully does that make you know, yes i think we've got a lot of people maybe hopefully not your listeners but a lot of age group athletes are in a state of kind of stagnation at least in overreaching possibly as a default and they're not even aware of it so their, their bodies are not going to be responsive to a functional overreach protocol because they're in a chronic state of not getting that distribution right. And so, and I've had athletes say, you know what, when I changed my, my, my intensity distribution, my max heart rate went up 10 beats. I think I have been chronically overreached for years. You know, I, they've literally said that. So my my point of all this is say well let's let's make sure you're not doing the overreaching without knowing it before you try to do it on purpose right right absolutely just for listeners out there who uh may want to know the numbers on those episode 51 polarizing your training with dr steven seiler that was the uh the episode that really kicked off our relationship i would say 
episode 54, Applying the Polarized Training Model with Dr. Seiler. We also had high-intensity training with Dr. Seiler, episode 75. And I think we talked sort of about the historical roots in the past, present, and future of Polarized Training episode, and that was episode 100. We saved that for a big number. Continuing with what you were saying, we got a fair amount of feedback on the the interval episode we did with you of people saying, I tried those intervals. Like for some reason, people have really jumped on the four by eights, our, our listeners right. have, yeah. and keep getting this feedback of, it didn't feel all that hard. <laughs> am, am I doing this right? <laughs> you know, I didn't crawl off my bike. Is something wrong here? And I think that goes back to what you're saying of people are, a lot of people are used to being in that chronically overreached state. And, sometimes it can be a struggle to think I'm going to do some intensity, but I'm going to walk away from it and be okay. Yeah. With my daughter, sometimes I say, look, I want you to always have one more in the tank. Yep. In other words, one more interval, you could have done one or two more, uh, when we're in the build phase, you know, we, we don't want to hit that absolute red line too often because, you know, it's just a costly, it's a costly, uh, game. So, I have no problem with the athlete leaving the track or leaving the bike with just a little bit left in the tank, because I think, again, that makes it a sustainable process of doing the work. And if they're that, if they have that figured out, then everything we've been talking about with this overreaching, then there is the potential to use that tool in the toolbox, but it's not going to be a useful tool if they're not, controlling themselves during the daily training i i I think those that's what connects these two is this high risk protocol is less risky if they've been doing things right and giving themselves some room giving their bodies some room for a a peaking process where their body is responsive to it i mean that those are good closing statements in a way but Maybe it's time for us to to wrap up the episode with our take-home messages. Uh, 60 seconds is what we normally give guests. Dr. Seiler, I'll give you 65 today if you want them. What's the the biggest take-home message you'd like people to to leave with today? Overtraining, true overtraining syndrome is a very rare but very serious condition. I hope none none of our athletes face it. And the way to avoid it is obviously with with good intensity distribution, respect for the the value of rest and recovery. Um, and then we've talked a lot about this overreach as a potential tool, a we- a weapon or a, a a method for trying to get a little bit out more out of our bodies for a peak. Uh, I would say that that is one of those kind of top end of the hierarchy uh, things we try after we've got all the other the basics right you know the basics of training intensity distribution the volume all of those things let's do that first and then uh, with having a good conversation with coach and understanding the risks involved then make an intelligent gamble on these these peaking strategies or overreach super comp strategies trevor what would you add here 
So the, the motivator of this whole episode was defining the difference between these terms. And the more I've read about them, the more I really like the terms. Because mm-hmm. I think before there was this notion that there's overreach and overtraining. And overreach is good. Overtraining is bad. We've definitely established overtraining is bad. But I like better this concept of functional versus non-functional overreach and the fact that it's not that big a jump to go from one to the other. So coaches have often referred to this as riding the razor's edge. And that's exactly what you're doing. So going back to what Dr. Seiler was talking about, if you're going to play with functional overreach, you are riding the, the edge and it's very easy to go over it. So do it sparingly, be careful, and make sure you, you have the self-awareness to make sure that you don't go over. Otherwise, just good, solid, steady, consistent training is probably gonna get you to the best place. Yeah. I guess the one thing I would add here is the fact that, um, you know, we, we do toss these terms around somewhat interchangeably and incorrectly so, most people out there, um, it sounds to me after this whole discussion that overreaching and doing it correctly is is really hard to do. So more than likely, most people who are attempting it might not be getting it right. And a lot more people are probably doing it uh, in a non-functional way or in a chronic way, and and they've stagnated. So uh, I think it's good to... uh, you know, all of this discussion helps people maybe step back and look at what they've done and try to assess where they're at in a broader sense and maybe tweak some things um, to actually refine what they're doing, distribute things a little bit more um, uh, positively, if you will. Hopefully it's been a helpful discussion. Dr. Sather, thank you as always. Always great having you on the show. This was this was a fascinating discussion. I was looking forward to this one. Yeah, great to be here. And I guess I was on the razor's edge as well because this is tough. They, it's not as cut and dry as, uh, as uh, a physiologist like myself would like it to be. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalkatfastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send those questions our way subscribe to fast talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast and be sure to leave us a rating and a review find us on social we're at real fast labs and we're online at fastlabs.com the thoughts and opinions expressed on fast talk are those of the individual for dr steven seiler sebastian weber jim miller pace mckelvin neil henderson and trevor connor i'm chris case Thanks for listening.